0: but i was with univac between 61 and 64 that's what i i discovered the uh, apl like wow wow
1: so you're you're actually probably one of like the very very earliest users of apl like literally in the world Welcome to ADSP the podcast episode 58 recorded on December 2nd 2021. My name is Connor and today with my co-host Bryce, we have a special episode with two special guests, father and son Otto and Eric Niebler. All right, so how should we how should we do this before we hop into and we let Eric and Otto introduce themselves? Maybe we should tell how did we get to this point? I think at one point Eric like so for those that aren't aware and how this would be possible i'm not sure i guess maybe this could be the first episode if this episode goes uh a little bit more viral for whatever viral means for adsp um i'm a huge array language fan apl is my favorite language and uh, most folks are aware of this and so i think i tweeted something and then eric you either retweeted or commented and said uh, my dad used to code an apl um and then I said, oh, maybe we should have him as a guest on a Raycast. One thing led to another thing. Bryce got upset that I was trying to recruit people to my other <laughs> podcast. And then we ended up He's setting up... He's
2: cheating on me. He's cheating <laughs> on me with his other co-host.
1: And uh, and so then we ended up setting up this episode where we have both Eric and Otto. So our first ever and probably one, maybe one of the only, I'm not sure if there's ever been a father-son combo guest on a tech podcast out there i'm like it's possible it's happened before but this could be the first um the first time ever this could be an exclusive no i actually
2: i actually know of another pair which is um michael spencer who works on llvm and is a c++ committee member his dad was on the posix committee one of the posix committees back when they were part of iso and so they, they actually like, they can have conversations about like committee stuff.
1: <laughs> have they been on a podcast though, is the question. No,
2: no, no, not, not, uh, not yet, but we could change that.
1: So, yeah, that's how we got here. And so I'm not sure what, how we want to go from here. If Eric, you want to introduce yourself first and then transition to auto or do we, do we do it in chronological order of who entered the <laughs> tech industry first? What do you think?
3: Uh, I'll, let me go, let me go first. I'll go first. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Eric Niebler currently employed at NVIDIA, um, and, um, uh, working mostly on you know, C++ stuff, of course. And, um, uh, you know, I, I have, uh you know, stood ranges in C++ 20 is um, a proposal that I brought forward currently working on making, um, abstractions, in, uh, for asynchronous programming in C++ suck a little bit less, um, that seems to be going all right. Um, the sender receiver stuff, um, is going swimmingly. Uh, you know, so that's what I'm excited about right now. I've been a member of the C++ standardization committee for, uh, about 20 years. Um, you know, I've, I've been around in the software industry. I've worked at, uh, Microsoft and Facebook. I've, um, consulted independently. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I owe an awful lot of it, um, to my dad, uh, who, um, who bought an IBM PC in, in 1986, um, when they were extremely underpowered and very expensive, uh, and he thought it would be really great for me and my sister. Um, and, and he was right. Both me and my sister are, um, in the, in the software industry, um, and, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, I hated computers cause it's what he wanted me to do. Um, and I, and I refused, I refused to learn anything about computers. I remember in high school, I wanted to write my, my book reports out by hand. Um, you know, cause I, I didn't like using the computer. My, my dad wanted me to, uh, use this, um, typing, this awful, awful typing tutor program to learn how to type faster. And I, and I hated it. Um, and it really wasn't until, until college, um, when uh, i kind of discovered computer programming on my own um and and so uh you know it, it, in some sense um you know i, I credit my dad and in, in another sense i i got involved in computers you know in spite of him
0: i've uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually feel great Eric. <laughs> <laughs>
3: but you know it was it was there and it was like part of the the water that i was swimming in as a kid um you know and i i do remember uh playing text based adventure games on my dad's IBM pc in the 80s and i and i do remember thinking like wow this would be cool and i remember trying to write one myself in basic when i was very young um so like you know it the the seeds were planted um from from way way back uh, so when i got exposed again to programming in in college i think um you know, I I took to it like a fish in water.
2: So, right. so what about what about you, Otto? So, were you were you a pro, you were a programmer? I
0: assume I was an assortment of things. Uh, right now, I'm currently employed by retirement. I've been retired since 2001. I started out actually 19. It was a it was a late 1950s. I I was uh, working on uh, quote. Computers at that time, which were not no less than uh, punch card equipment. Uh, I started really when I was in uh, my second year of Fordham at university. And I was looking for a part-time job. And uh, one of my classmates was working in the Wall Street area. And he said, come on now, I'll show you what, what a computer looks like. Well, the computer was, uh, it was a UNIVAC uh, Solid State 80, I think it was. And it was a punch card equipment and was, he was doing stock record, which was a basic brokerage back office account. And, uh, I was, uh, training to be a, a dentist at the time at Fordham. And, uh, I, uh, saw the computer and it was, uh, I think it was love at first sight. I, I went home and I said, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Walk down the throats of people or you want to do some programming. And, uh, I said, I think programming would be my life. So at the time, I was living at home with my parents, and I said to my father, I'm going to quit Fordham. I want to go into this field called computers. This is 1956 now. My father is old school, um, and he says, computers? He says, they're toys. He says, they're not going to last very long. Get a real job. Become a a dentist, you know? Uh, I says, no, dad. I I think there's a future there somewhere for me, you know? So I quit Fordham, and I got myself a, uh, a job at a uh, Reverend Rand Service Bureau. Uh, and basically, it uh, it lasted for about, oh, three years, I think. And then I realized I have to get a college education. Uh, so I uh, went back to my family and said, I think I want to go back to school. And he says, My father says, this time it's your nickel. You're going to pay for it. I paid for uh, uh, the first half. You pay for the second half. So I went back to Columbia uh, as a math major because they didn't have computer science in those -hmm. late 50s. And uh, it was there, I I, uh, I read up on Ken Iverson and uh, the notation that he had. And I really liked his work. Uh, So when I graduated, I was hired by Unimac. And all of a sudden, I found this language called APL. And it was Ken Iverson all over again, you know. So I fell in love with the language. It was an amazing language, as you probably can tell, to talk about a lot better than I can. But that's what got me really started into computers, too. Um, from there, I had an assortment job. I started out as, as a programmer, uh, supporting a marketing team. We market I was in Manhattan at the time. So we marketed mostly uh, lower Manhattan uh, applications. Uh, and uh, that's what Univac. And then I uh, left Univac, went to a GE. GE was just starting up their computer line. And I programmed the, uh, the uh, let's see, it was a 200, the GE 200, I believe it was. I was at GE for about three years. And uh, then I went on to... The New York Stock Exchange and I'll automate their ticker uh, this is back late, the late 60s the late 60s in Wall Street was a very traumatic period of time where uh, Wall Street finally got the word about computers and started uh, becoming a little more efficient and they, they converted most of their operation to technology and I was there for about three years we automated the ticker among other projects uh, and uh, that I Uh, The project I was working on, the uh, ticker automation, we we teamed up with IBM. IBM did the control program and developed a a totally fault-tolerant computer. It was a three three, three 360-50s lashed together, and they shared a a mass storage device. It was a ferrite core mass storage, but it was a totally fault-tolerant system. No time lost, no transactions lost. And it was a classic at the time. It really was. And then from there, let's see. What was that written in? The software part? The, the uh, I believe it was written in uh, assembly language. IBM did the programming on it. Uh, uh, the control program programming on it. Um, I wrote in, uh, it was COBOL, mostly COBOL. Uh, we had a little bit of Fortran. Uh uh, something called ALGOL at that time. And yeah. uh, that's a variety of languages that we use. And uh, mostly a assembly language. Though so That's where most of the tricky programming was done. Um, yeah, both of the working with the New York Stock Exchange, I went on, I left the exchange and I didn't uh, that's right. since that was the primary interface with, with the New York Stock Exchange to the IBM. Uh, they gave me a job. They said, hey, we want you to work on uh, brokerage for Wall Street applications. So we developed applications for about a year or two. And then I went on to becoming a manager a while. And then I was uh, into consulting for a while. So we did disaster recovery planning for a lot of the major firms in Manhattan, which was uh, probably the most interesting job I had with IBM, but uh, I look back on my record, and uh, the term Rolling Stone comes to mind, where I didn't last any longer than three years on any job I worked on, (laughs) including when I was with IBM. Every three years, I changed jobs, and luckily, IBM had a variety of jobs that kept my interest going, so then I retired. So that—that's my career in twenty-five words or less.
3: You told me a great story about the um, the work on um, automating the ticker. Uh, that that work didn't go flawlessly, though, did it?
0: Not really. I, I think it also illustrates the mentality of, of Wall Street investors. Yeah. We uh, took a, a a a ticker system that was based on pneumatic tubes. Reporters on the floor of the exchange would. Report trades on pieces of paper that they'd stick in pneumatic tubes, pump it up to the third floor of 11 Wall, which is where the exchange was. And young ladies would take the uh, slips out, get onto a, a, tele, a, a teletype machine. Actually, it was a punch punch paper tape machine. Punch it out to Reuters, and Reuters would blast it across the world. That's basically the system we had to replace. We replaced it with. A mark sense reader on the floor and the reporter instead of using pieces of paper he would use a mark sense card they' using a pencil and a card and a card the shape of a punch card actually read it to the reader and the reader would basically feed it into the 360 configuration that we had He would format a a, a ticker message and put it out on a ticker and send it out um, in order to train the reporters on how to use the uh, the box sense reader. We had a training system on the third floor, which consisted of a box sense reader, and instead of the telety- uh, t- instead of the, type, uh, the uh, tape that we sent out, it would come out on a teletype machine, which is above the box sense reader. But uh, there was a slight glitch in the program, my program actually, where instead of going out to the tel- to the, the teletype printer. It went out over the ticker itself. And we had a fictitious trade of 1 million shares of XYZ. And XYZ does not exist on the floor of the exchange. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there was a panic on the floor of people wanting to buy XYZ, but they couldn't find the damn post where it was traded, you know. So it hit the papers the next day. And it was a chuckle but most people had. But my manager was not very happy with that at all. <laughs> uh, credibility was a big, big, uh important feature of the New York Stock Exchange. So anyway, that's that's the story.
2: And it was it was probably pretty hard to get the you know the Wall Street uh, industry to um, to believe in and have confidence in this new you know that was the big system. concern.
0: That was the big concern by the New York Stock Exchange. They pride themselves in being uh, the the blue chip exchange of New York and uh, the world, actually. And credibility is very, very important. That mistrade is very, very important. What the way they recovered from that was a message on the ticker following that ticker, the following day. Which we did it on a, on a, on, a, on a, uh, we did it during during uh, trading hours we put a, a, a correction message out of the ticket saying disregard this message of XYZ but it was too late, the horses were out of the barn at that point, they were running like hell and uh, so it gives you an idea of the mentality of, of how much uh, an a investigation goes on in investing on a, a hot stock which they thought was a hot stock a company that didn't even exist
3: yeah yeah,
0: yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: So to rewind to the back, because I'm super curious. So you said that you basically set eyes on a computer for the first time in 56. Yeah, um, it was a
0: punch card. It was the uh, solid state, I think the Univac solid state 80.
1: Yeah, so that was 56. Then you went uh, and worked for three years, then went back to school. And it sounds like you actually ran into Iverson notation um, first. uh, And that's what you mentioned by Ken Iverson's work. And then later on, I was in Columbia, yeah, yeah. So that Uh, was at Columbia,
0: yeah.
1: And and then later on, you ran into APL. So for folks that don't know the timeline, uh, in the late, if that's the late fifties or nineteen sixty, at that time when you're at Columbia, APL doesn't exist at that point in time. Um, It's not until nineteen sixty two that Ken Iverson actually publishes his book, and they don't actually have an APL implemented that you can code in until I think it's sixty six or sixty seven. So that's super,
0: super. No, I, I was working for a Univac sixty one through sixty four. It was in Univac. I saw I used the alignment. Oh, really?
2: So that, oh. that must that must have been in its first, you know, in its early development stages.
0: It was it was a relatively new uh, language, as I recall. Uh, it Was myself and a, this other guy that, that I was very interested in as well. He introduced me to the Iverson notation. And I got hooked into it, and uh, together we were, we were just screwing around with it to see what we could do with it. And uh, But I know that uh, I was able to do a hell of a lot more with that language than I can with basic, uh, which is what I was used to writing, it, or an assembly language. But I was with UNIVAC between 61 and 64. That's when I, I discovered the APL uh, language. Wow. So wow. That's even, I think, that must have been like a –
1: like implementation by univac or something um it may have been a
0: beta version uh you know that we got our hands on i i got no idea all i know is i didn't use it during that, that period of time wow wow so
1: you're, you're actually probably one of like the very very earliest users of apl like literally in the
0: world um i wouldn't categorize myself as a user i mean i we feel, we fooled around with it but uh yeah I, I did. We did not do any kind of productive work with it. We I don't caught, think any do
2: productive work with uh, with it either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so, what would you say of the languages that you've sort of programmed with? Because it sounds like uh, the three APL or the three three sixties that were tied together for that. You mentioned a slew of languages: Fortran, Cobol, uh, yeah. Algol. Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned and Basic suddenly. in that run. And suddenly. assembly was the main one. Uh, yeah. Did you spend like most of your career working with any one of those or did you? were you basically a polyglot? Actually,
0: I was not the one working. I was a manager at, uh, at that time. Uh, I had a staff of people who were working on it. My particular, my particular responsibility for that project was to develop the application side of it and the interface with IBM on a control program. Uh, we laid down specs for the control program on what IBM was to do. Okay, but we... The team I had, we were basically application programs.
1: And so did how did the 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 team or the folks that were working for you? Did they? Is it? I guess at that time, like so, so these days, you know, a lot of times when you're building something, you have a teammate engineers. Not that there's a vote or something, but you know, everyone has their, you know, oh, I want to code this in C or you know, Rust is. It was not language. up to them. It's not it up was to them.
0: divided up by the, the function that they were addressing with the with the software with the. Uh, the application itself. The, uh, the more uh, complicated applications, we tried to go with the uh, the, uh, the macro languages like uh, COBOL and and I'm sorry, uh, Fortran and, and ALGO. Uh, the more the more stringent type of uh, the more complicated type of programming, we usually wound up doing it in assembly language because we had the most control at right, that time.
1: And when, so Eric, when did you enter this? So I assume, you know, back in 56, uh, you, you clearly weren't alive yet. So uh, at what point, at what point did you I'm enter not that the old? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing it was, you're not that old. Uh. No, no. I, I came into the picture
3: in 1973. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. when I was born. <laughs> and yeah. you, you and the, said you got it, that first IBM PC in 86? I think so. Yeah. Because, uh, um because I, you know, I, I, I know that there was a computer that was bought in '86. I don't know if it was the first IBM PC that my dad. Bought. It, was. it was. Okay. Okay. Because because really? I know I know this because I, I you know se- several years maybe ten ten fifteen years ago I went down to my parents' basement and the machine is was still there actually um, in the basement and uh, I was very excited. Um, because um, the the keyboards that came with those PCs are legendary, um, the IBM Model M um, keyboard, and and so I I I took it. I mean, it was it was filthy. It was like completely encrusted over. So I like meticulously took it apart and cleaned every piece of it and reassembled it and brought it back to Seattle with me, which is where I live. Um, and and I know. I know it's from 1986 because because all IBM Model M keyboards have have their birth date on on the back of them, oh, wow. and that keyboard uh, was made in October 1986. Um, and do you, do you and still so, have it? So this is a really sad story. Oh no! Um, it, yeah, this is a sad story, and I, I can tell you haven't seen my CP con talk yet because I talk about it there. So shame Just on you for not this, watching. From uh, this. My 2021
1: talk. right yes okay yes. I, have, I haven't seen it yet i haven't yeah, seen I any haven't of the CPP talks because they don't they're like hidden on youtube still i think or
3: no no this one this one is actually public on youtube you can find it now okay, um I have, but anyway I have no excuse um, then
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> the uh the keyboard traveled with me uh, wherever i went um and, and i loved it and this is the keyboard that i i use day to day And I started working at Facebook and of course I brought it to work with me and it uh, was there on my desk at Facebook um, when lockdown happened uh, due to the the pandemic. Um, And I, you know, like the rest of the world uh, didn't really appreciate at the time exactly how long lockdown would happen. It would be. Uh, So, um, so I left a lot of stuff at my desk. I'm like, I'm going to come back to this in a few weeks. It'll be fine. Um, But, um, but then, uh, then, you know, like, We were still off, uh, you know, in lockdown and then like office moves happened. And then uh, I, I changed jobs to NVIDIA and like I never got I never got back to the office to reclaim my stuff. And nobody knows what happened to that keyboard. It has just vanished into thin air. So I am like I am like bereft. I am like heartbroken because this is the keyboard that i i i learned to program on in the 80s um it's the keyboard that i played um you know uh, decathlon on uh, uh in, in 1987 um you know it's the keyboard that i played zork 1 on you know uh, this text based adventure game and and you know i remember sitting next to my uh, my best friend at the time and we were you know hammering away on that keyboard playing um playing games like really awful 80s pc games really bad games that we absolutely loved um and of course that that keyboard you know the reason why it's so legendary is because it's like absolutely indestructible like that keyboard weighed more than like more than my laptop um you could clock someone over the head with it it would do real damage (laughs) it had this big steel plate on the bottom of it You know, to make it like super like heavy and stable. So it wouldn't bounce around when you were (laughs) typing on it. So anyway, like I have no idea what happened to this keyboard. It's out there somewhere. It unfortunately doesn't have my name on it. I should have written my name on it. But if somebody at Facebook hears this and they, uh, you know, they, they have somehow inherited an IBM Model M keyboard. They don't know where it came from. And if they check the bottom and it says October 1986 on it, Please reach out to me. <laughs> yeah, l- listen, listeners, this is our our mission to you. Help us locate uh, my my lost keyboard. IBM Model M keyboard. Yeah,
1: Th- this podcast now has two goals: one, to be number one in Slovenia. Uh, we love you. <laughs> we love you, Slovenia. Um, and two, to track down this keyboard. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that's why Facebook rebranded to Meta. I, you know, I've heard lots of reasons, but potentially Zuckerberg is trying to like you know cover up the tracks of this key it sounds like this keyboard is probably worth quite a bit if you sold it online um i was i was actually
2: going to ask um otto do you remember how much that ibm pc would have cost in like when you bought it in 86 i remember you remember
0: the the amount that we i paid for it i believe was twenty five hundred dollars i'm sorry it was no twenty five hundred dollars yeah I remember, I remember mom making a stink about it
3: because it was five grand.
0: Five grand. You know, you're probably right. You're probably right. In today's dollars, it's all over
3: $10,000. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Five grand. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it, it was, was like, it was like a toy, right? It was like a pocket calculator.
0: It was almost grounds for divorce too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, the, the reason I ask is because you know it's not something, you know, it, it was not a small purchase at the time. It was not common for people to have a have a computer in the house.
0: That's that's true. It was, and, but it was uh, it was a must for me. It was a must have. Yeah, you know, computers were very very novel. I think people who were addicted to it, like I was, had to have it. Okay, regardless of how much it cost.
3: Mm. Did you like with an IBM machine, and you were working for IBM at the time. Did you get some sort of company discount?
0: Uh, I probably did, and I'm trying to remember how much. It, it, it was not a lot. In that respect, IBM was not that generous hmm. uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, corporate company discounts like that. The uh, the IBM that particular model of IBM was hard to come by because they they felt customers had to come first before the employees. So we were at the bottom of the food chain on this one. Was that an AT or an XT, or what was that? It was an XT. I I believe it was an XT. XT, I think, preceded an AT. I'm not sure now. I I think,
3: I don't remember. I'll get it wrong. I I thought the AT came first, but I'm not sure. I I could be right.
0: It's been over 50 years for me. So,
3: so one thing I do know is that keyboard, like it, it has this long like telephone cable, this yeah, black telephone so cool. cable, right? Yeah, and yeah. and it's coil, so you could like you know walk around with it, you know. Um, it was portable. Portable, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and and the the plug, like where you stuck it into the computer, it was this big fat like nine pin, I think nine pin thing, yeah. and those plugs are called AT plugs. So that's okay. why I think I think the um, the AT came first because that's that was probably the first computer that used that plug and so the it got called the AT plug.
0: Right.
3: Yeah. No, it just looks the like. Looks ah, like
2: sorry, the, the AT came second. The AT was
3: eighty
0: four. The XT was eighty three. Yeah. Um, okay. I had the earlier one.
1: Is this just a computer model for those that are out of the yeah, loop, yeah. like me?
2: <laughs> I, th- oh, I think yeah. that I think that was a an eight eighty pro an. 8088
0: processor.
3: 8088. You're right. Yeah. So I think, but this is like the fir- IBM's first like home PC.
0: Yeah. Is that was that the first one, the XT? That I believe it was the first one. But the keyboard was not the first one. That came out of its office products division. That you that was being used by uh, the office products for their devices. So the keyboard preceded the. Uh, that laptop, I'm sorry, that desktop long before the, the desktop was created i didn't know
2: no. so that that was like the second the second chip that Intel made, basically
3: Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I learned to program on <laughs> wow, yeah, I was writing basic um for that really bad text based adventure games,
0: one event that I, that sort of. Uh, made me consider Eric for computers, that he wrote a basic program, I think while he was in his early teens. And uh, it was a very simple program, but it tested my hearing. And it discovered that I had a hearing loss in the higher range frequencies, which happens to be true today. Uh, but he discovered it when he was, I think, 14 or 15 years old with his, with his basic program. Right then and there, I, I knew that he was it was meant for computers. Even though he fought a tooth and nail, he, he, I knew he was—he was meant to be for computers. It was
3: the simplest program. It was probably like ten lines of code. Somehow, I learned how to um, like control the um, the speaker, you know, and and play play um, tones. And it just like it uh, started real low and went up real high, and it was like, "Did you hear this? Yes or no?" Right. <laughs> and we were absolutely stunned when when. My dad was like, "I think there's something wrong with the program. Like it didn't play a sound." <laughs> and and we were all dumbfounded because we're like, "You didn't hear that?"
1: <laughs> wow. So at wow. first you at first you thought that the program didn't work uh, and that maybe yeah. he wasn't uh, <laughs> destined to be computer. And then you realized, "Oh <laughs> wait, the, it does work. It's just a couple lines. Oh. It's my hearing that's uh, not
3: working."
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. Oh. Wow that's uh that's pretty amazing um that you were bit, you were like a little medical programmer back then
3: uh I guess know. so that's that that in the and the text based adventure games the only programs I actually remember right Oh, that in copying programs out of byte magazine um with my friend um you know and trying to trying to get those programs to work but they they never did you know. Because uh, you know the the print in those byte magazines was like okay I can't tell if this is an O or a zero or uh, you know what what is, what what is this thing anyway and then and then you'd make like one typo and the whole program wouldn't work and then you'd have to go back meticulously and find you know it was it was pain painful um, but I guess that was that was the fun of programming back then I don't know yeah
2: because that 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 used to be how for 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 all the young listeners that used to be how programs would get distributed before you'd, yeah, that you that know, was open source send them around on floppy disks they'd be in some magazine yeah.
3: you'd, have to, you'd they'd have to be in a magazine yeah. <laughs> you had to type it in yeah exactly that was programming in the early days uh, of, of my my early days you know not my dad's
0: early. oh my days the uh, the actual testing of a program was a hell of a lot more difficult than it is tonight we would get maybe one or two turnarounds a day and by a turnaround it's uh, submitting a test to a, a computer and getting the results back within one day. So uh, the the term interactive programming did not exist with us. It was, you had to literally assemble, test and then print out the core dump. And from that, you were able to debug a program. So we were lucky if we got one, if not two turnarounds a day.
2: Yeah, that's that's actually, uh, it's very similar to um, when I worked in supercomputing, high-performance computing if you had an application where you were running it at scale, you know, you were running it on half the supercomputer or the whole supercomputer um, and you had some bug at that scale, you know, it would take you 24 hours or 48 hours to submit the job to the system that, you know, would go and run there. And then you'd get your result back. And, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be interactive at all. It would run, you know, at 3.00 AM sometime. And, yeah. Uh, You'd have to do your best to debug based on what you got back
0: well we had a few other complicating factors. We had something called punch cards that you guys didn't don't use. <laughs> Most of the programs are on punch card, so in addition to debugging a program, we had to get a key puncher lined up to repunch the cards and then uh, have someone feed the cards in along with the test material and generate a a, a printout after that so. It was, uh, it was a, l- a little more involved than that. It really was. We had also programs. The programs would, uh, at least on a Univac, early Univac machine, I, I programmed the Univac 3 originally. We had a drum arrangement where the drum actually laid the program. I'm sorry, the, the, the program would lay the actual instructions onto a drum. And to execute it, it would execute off the drum. So after debugging the program, you had to go through another exercise where you had to do a, uh, uh, it's called, it was a a lattice uh, refinement where you had to reduce or replace the words so it would be an efficient execution of the program. The drum would rotate and hopefully by the time the drum rotated to the next instruction, it would then execute. Now, if it missed that word and, and go to another rotation, you had a latency problem, which slowed the program down. So in addition to debugging the program, we had to make a, a latest, a lattice uh, refinement, making it an efficient uh, distribution of words on a drum itself. So it ran efficiently so it's like
3: it's like pipelining in the 1950s yeah yeah
2: yeah it's I wow that's amazing I've never you know that that's something that you know today is done by by your processor for you or by your compiler at the worst um it's it's amazing to think that you used to have to do that by hand
0: we had we had to do that ourselves so that shows you how far you you guys progressed
2: when you were writing a program like when you were doing the development, would you do it, um, would you just do it on paper? um, And then you transfer to the punch card?
0: We basically uh, use the the same techniques you use today. If you flowchart the uh, the logic and you basically translate that into machine language or uh, compiler language, whichever one is is appropriate. Have you then, uh, this would be on coding sheets You submit the coding sheets to a key punch operator who would punch up the uh, instructions, punch it into the cards, and basically submit that to the operator who would do the test. You have to provide your own test material as well, which includes tapes. Uh, We did not have things like uh, random access storage at that time. So we had to provide data in the form of tape as well. And they basically then ran it. And if it didn't work, they would dump it and put it onto a printer and say, fix it. (laughs) That's basically the process at that time. And we thought it was fabulous, Uh, The the whole technique, we thought it was very, very efficient. But uh, it shows you how far we've gone.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed, and stay tuned for part two next week.